The very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. questions you always had, the answers you were never given, the place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. Greetings to everyone around the world, and a warm welcome to another edition of Veritas at VeritasRadio.com. I'm your host, Mal Fabregas, and I sincerely thank you for joining me once again. And if this is your first time, or your truth journey brought you here, welcome home. And after so many years, you know what to do by now if you want to listen to tonight's full program and every single program we've created from day one. Just go to our website and click on subscribe. Believe me, you won't regret it. And you will also regret to give your life an upgrade. And to do so, just go to sanitasradio.com and take a listen. You won't be the same person, I guarantee it. And if you want to get in touch with me, so any suggestion for a guest, feedback, you want to be a guest on this radio program, I'd love to hear from you. Just go to our website and click on the contact button. And don't forget to like us on Facebook. Much like the Gnostics, Black Freemasons were a secret society within a secret society, and they certainly not only shaped black culture, but American culture as well. Or maybe they weren't so secretive with such members as Louis Armstrong, Duke Ellington, Nat King Cole, Yubi Blake, Cap Calloway, Paul Robeson, just to name a few. Just like the Gnostics, the African Americans in early American history realized we lived in a false reality controlled by oppressive powers and principalities that exploited our divine spark. And to tell us more about Black Freemasonry, tonight's special guest is Professor Cecile Reverger, a respected historian of Freemasonry and a professor at the University of Bordeaux. She is the author of several books on Freemasonry, including the latest one titled Black Freemasonry, From Prince Hall to the Giants of Jazz. Even though she lives in Bordeaux, southern France, she joins us from the beautiful island of Martinique, not too far away from where I grew up in the Caribbean. Hello, Professor Reverger, and welcome to Veritas. Thanks for joining us. Hello, and thank you very much for inviting me. It's my pleasure. Well, first question I have, how did you come to write this book? Yes. Um, well, you know, it's quite a challenge because... Um, well, for many people, it's surprising, first of all, that a woman should write about Freemasonry. As a white now. European female academic writing exactly. a book about Freemasonry. <laughs> exactly. Um, well, in fact, I, I, I have, well, I, my PhD uh, covered um, British and American Freemasonry in the 18th century. And ever since, Herbergé. I've been working on Freemasonry. And as I as I lived in and worked uh, in Martinique for a while, I, I really had an interest in Black Freemasonry, and uh, I realized how important 
Prince Hall Freemasonry was, in fact, uh, not in Martinique, but in, in America and in the Caribbean, uh, in Barbados, for instance, or uh, St. Lucia, or, uh, you know, so that's how I started, actually. <laughs> and what you mentioned at the beginning of your book, this might raise some eyebrows, a white European female academic writing a book about black Freemasons. <laughs> but you've been writing about Freemasonry for quite some time. What motivated you to look into secret societies? Well, um, I, I, I was really interested in the link they had with society. That is to say, not secret societies for a secret society's sake, but trying to see how they impacted Uh, the society of their time, how they reflected the ideas of their time, the kind of influence they could have. Uh, and since I started in the 18th century, of course, I was most interested in the importance of um, Freemasonry during the American Revolution. The fact that George Washington, Paul Revere, Joseph Warren, all those patriots were Freemasons. So um, that's, you know, I realized that although they belonged to this secret society, uh, they really had an influence on the society of their time. And what, what I try to show, it's not because they have a sort of esoteric power or whatever, no, but simply that by joining those societies which are inspired by the ideas of tolerance, religious tolerance, um, freedom. They uh, wanted to have an impact on their society too. So you actually find a lot of major actors uh, of the American Revolution who were Freemasons. So that's an example, you see. Um, I also worked on the French Revolution and found that Uh, again, there were Masons on both sides, you know, on the on the sides of the revolutionaries and of the anti-revolutionaries, actually. Um, so you you cannot, of course, put labels, but um, what is there is the motivation to act on society, one way or another. If you see what I mean. <laughs> certainly, certainly. Now let's talk about the birth of Black Freemasonry. When All right. and well, how they... how did Black Freemasonry begin? Well, in fact, they started about 1784. So the idea was that um, they, first of all, it was, it started with one man who was called Prince Hall, hence the name. Prince Hall was um, an emancipated slave, and he was a free black living in Boston at the end of the 18th century. And he actually, so there is a, well, what is not absolutely Uh, sure is when he was actually made a mason because we have no evidence of that so we think that it was in, a, in an irish military lodge which was stationed near boston but what is sure is that he indeed became a mason and that he wanted to fund his own lodge which was called the african lodge number so the first african lodge in fact and Uh, he so at the time you know you had to ask for a charter and apparently prince hall had a good contact with joseph warren and he wanted and he was promised this charter by charter by uh, joseph warren but unfortunately joseph warren died at the bank battle of bunker hill in 1775 and when he died Um, Prince Hall tried to connect with the uh, the Masons of Massachusetts, but they wouldn't hear anything. So 
he had the idea of applying for a charter to Britain, uh, to the Grand Lodge of England. So this shows, incidentally, the, that there were many links between uh, uh, American settlers, but also those emancipated blacks and some British people. And because he very easily secured a charter, when I say very easily, of course, you have to take into account the amount of time it took to travel in those days. So the charter was actually signed in 1784, but by the time it got to Boston, it was 1787. And of course, you can imagine that the British were more than pleased to grant a charter to black Freemasons when uh, the American Freemasons, whom, well, refused them one, and of course, in the context of the war between Britain and America, uh, you know, Britain had the good role. <laughs> to antagonize the Americans. Yes, yes, absolutely. But anyway, this this um, this lodge started with a few men, and very soon they had an active role in the city because they began organizing petitions. So they even sent petitions to the Assembly of Massachusetts because in those days, you know, of course, um, there were a lot of free blacks, but we are in 1784, 87. And in 1788, for instance, they really sent this wonderful petition to the Assembly of Massachusetts uh, asking for the, the end of slavery. And what happened also was that... Um, well, a lot of captains would come near the Boston, well, in Boston Harbor, and they would attract those free blacks and, you know, on their boats and tell them, you know, that they, they would be paid. Lure them? Yes. And then they would sail away with them and sell them back into slavery. So this phenomenon was quite current, apparently. Where? And Where would they find... sell them? Uh, throughout the Caribbean, for example? Uh, yes. Or uh, that's it, in, you know, or uh, in in all sorts of uh, harbors where they they still actually bought slaves. Yes, yeah? so it could be Jamaica, it could be uh, Barbados, it could be uh, uh, Haiti before it was <laughs> before it became independent. So know? before there was emancipation in certain locations, once you sell them there, they don't care yeah. that you're emancipated in the United States. Well, that's it. They didn't check, you know, they couldn't care less, you know, right. they, they bought them as any slaves. Uh, that's it. So, um, well, because, of course, in, in well, the, the uh, Britain only put an end to the slave trade in 1807. So this was, you know, before that. Mm -hmm. And uh, so it was actually still possible to sell slaves. Uh, uh, I mean, uh, even though they were, con they had been emancipated because they had been manumitted, as as one said in those days in the north. Um, but of course, this was before the official abolition of slavery. So, the, and, uh, and 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 you you do find Prince Hall and his friends sending those petitions, and uh, and this petition was reproduced in the press. Actually, it was printed. Um, when they, they, you know, they asked the, the Boston Assembly to put an end to that practice. And also at another point, um, you find Prince all asking for a school for black children. Because, well, in those days, as you can imagine, they were, uh, uh, well, I mean, it was very difficult for um, 
black children to be accepted in schools. Okay, there was segregation. Yeah. So I mean, obviously, what what we what we find that very very soon they tried to play a role, a social role, you see, for the integration of black people in the American community. Well, the first question should have been, and I believe you already answered, but I'm curious. <laughs> someone must have made Prince Hall a mason. The question is, who? Why is it hard to find direct evidence? regarding this assignment, if you will. Yes. Well, you know, we are talking, we are discussing 1784. And as, as a general rule, it's very difficult to find precise archives uh, for that period, you see. Um, because, uh, well, yes, you do. But the minutes are quite rare. Uh, you, you do not find them everywhere, and some of them have been lost. Some of them, um, so, uh, I mean, it's quite possible, simply, that the minutes of that military lodge um, have been lost. And so it's it's very difficult because during the time it's very difficult to find the the actual uh, record. But that would have been such a great information. Who, do, if you had to speculate, and I know as a professor you have to have evidence in order to speak on, on a subject. Mm -hmm. But if you had to speculate, who do you think was responsible for? making well, Prince Hall a mason? certainly one of those traveling lodges, either Irish or British, um, because in those days they were traveling lodges, that is to say military lodges, right, approaching the coast and um, accompanying soldiers. And so it was probably one of those. Because, But we, know, we, we do have evidence for the charter because the first charter has been kept. So it, it can be actually seen, the 1784 charter delivered by the Grand Lodge of England, right? And um, when, you go to, when you go to London in the Freemasonry Museum, uh, they do have uh, proceedings and they do have lists, and especially now they are um, having a special uh, database uh, to try and find out Uh, the greatest number of um, uh, dates, uh, initiation dates and everything. So, I mean, you, you, we have some evidence, but some is lacking. It's true that, uh, and then you cannot invent it, of course, but, um, well, that's the thing. <laughs> but, you know, uh, this question, I mean, is it that important? Okay, we know, well, we can assume it was probably an Irish lodge, but what is really important for me is the fact that this man should have made his own lodge, should have started his own lodge, because, you know, a lot of American Masons, white Masons later on, said that this was not regular because they could not prove anything and also because uh, they, re you know, all this, uh, this, this uh, notion of regularity, I mean, is so subjective, really. This is what I want to say. Um, because obviously... Uh, those Masons acted as Masons, you know, they had, uh, and we, we, we have, um, uh, we have the proceedings of Prince Hall and um, uh, of that lodge and uh, some of the, um, the speeches which were delivered by Prince Hall to his lodge. We have that evidence 
right? But, um, well, what we have to understand is that in 1723, James Anderson, who wrote the Constitutions of Freemasonry, actually wrote that no bondman, no slave could be a Mason. When he wrote that, well, my feeling is that he wrote it in a sort of philosophical way, saying that you had a free, you had to be free. But because of that, generations of American Freemasons later on said and kept repeating that you had to be white because, or if not white, at least you could never be, well, you could not be black because a black man had originally been a slave. And that's what they kept repeating through the 19th century. Because they wouldn't expect blacks to be emancipated human beings at any time in the future. Sorry? So they they said that, am I understanding right, that they said that you could not have a slave, but they never expected blacks to be free? Well, it was even worse than that. Because... Um, there were, you know, there were what was called landmarks. Landmarks were sort of rules, right, constitutions, written by someone called Albert Mackey, and that was in the 19th century. And those landmarks kept repeating, that, just like Anderson, that you had to be free-born, which meant that even if you were an emancipated black person, because you had been born in slavery, <laughs> you could not be made a Mason. Mm. And actually, the British changed that. The British changed that in 1847, and they actually rewrote the constitutions, and they changed the word freeborn, right, by simply uh, replaced it by free. You have to be free men and not freeborn men, you see. So all this was very subtle. And... Uh, well, I mean, you cannot deny that there was a lot of racism in the 19th century. And things changed, fortunately. Things changed, and uh, you had some white American Grand Lodges like uh, the Washington Grand Lodge or uh, the Grand Lodge of Massachusetts, um, which, you know, at the end of the 19th century and uh, in, uh, well, in also at the beginning of the 20th century, tried to change things. but you had to wait till 1987 for the first American Grand Lodge officially to recognize the first Prince Hall Grand Lodge. Hold, hold, hold there, because I like to go in chronological order, and that's something I want to discuss later. Why did it take so long until 1987 for this to happen? But let's go back in time still. Mm-hmm. How different is white from black Freemasonry all the way from the beginning? Not different at all. (laughs) This is it, you see. It's so similar because from the very beginning, well, I mean, the the big difference is between uh, American Freemasonry on the one hand and European Freemasonry, uh, French Freemasonry. Right, but and and this difference. Okay, sorry. I again, I I have to anticipate because this took place in eighteen in in um, eighteen seventy seven. Really, the major split. But before that, you know, the Amer- American Freemasons really in, well uh, insisted that a Mason should be 
uh, tolerant from a religious point of view, but should. Thank you for listening. To unlock the full two hour interview, including video formats, downloads, transcripts, exclusive articles, and more, subscribe to Veritas Plus now. Gain access to our entire archive dating back to 2008. Just click subscribe at veritasradio.com. Because you don't want to believe, you want to know. Subscribe now. To listen to the rest and all of our exclusive material, proceed to the Veritas Plus member section or join the Veritas Plus family by subscribing. Click on the subscribe button at veritasradio.com. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store for focused life force energy. Get a 15-day free trial today with no credit card required. And if you want to get in touch with Mel, want to be a guest on this radio program, have a guest suggestion, or have feedback, just click on the contact button on our website at veritasradio.com. Now, proceed to the Veritas Plus member section or subscribe to listen to the rest of the interview. You don't want to miss it because you don't want to believe. You want to know. What are you waiting for? Subscribe now at veritasradio.com.